Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kmaq people. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. Yeah, it's fun. You can see the shadows moving over there, but at solar noon, the pillars cast a shadow right down that runway. Right. And they line up with that beautiful apple tree down there. Oh, okay, and yeah. If, at night, above it is Polaris, the night northern star. Oh, okay. Very, very interesting. So that was the executive director of the Deanery Project, Kim Thompson, showing visitors the Sky Pillar, which is one of the installations which connects art and science. The Deanery Project is nestled in a forested sheltered cove of the Atlantic Ocean on the eastern shore that hosts a variety of intriguing installations, low-impact buildings, diverse workshops, projects, and events. In response to the challenges of our times, the Deanery is a convening space and a living laboratory for research and for building capacity for communities. We'll head now into their Wabanagi tree nursery, where I sat with Kim Thompson and Dr. Jen McClatchy to learn from them about how the sky pillar bridges land and sky, day and night. First, you'll hear Kim set the stage a little. So science and the arts inform everything that we do at the deanery. And we use very much a two-eyed seeing lens as part of that dialogue and as part of our programming and our efforts for inclusion and development in so many ways. So we've had a number of signature events that have emerged over the years. One of those is Rural Roots and another one which has been really important is Sea Light Skylight. And Sea Light Skylight takes place during the Perseid meteor shower in August. And it's a connection between this celestial event and um, the amazing amount of bioluminescence we have in the harbor at that time. So the skylight part is the Perseids and looking at the skies and working with the Royal Astronomical Society. They come out and do science-related programming, and um, we invite the community in to bring their binoculars. And we sit out on the field and watch the meteors flashing by us, hopefully many, many, many of them over the course of the evening. And there's music happening on our little stage. There's art making things, children make lanterns, and there's a procession down to the waterfront. And then they get, there's an experience around the bioluminescence that happens also. And yeah, they, we get to celebrate all of those things. That sounds amazing. I've wanted to attend and I haven't made it yet. Can, can anybody come? Yes, it's open to anyone and everyone that would like to, to be part of it. We've had up to like 120 people is a nice number to to have mm. for for that that gathering, and sometimes we've done it over a period of a couple of days because it's uh, the Perseids, you know, 
there's a week or so that you can see them in abundance if the uh, darkness and the moon and everything align properly. So that's been a big event where we're trying to get people outdoors, connecting with nature at night, which is not something we always do as mm-hmm. in, in our century. And uh, I work with the architecture students. Um, they've been a big part of the deanery ever since we started back in 2011. So they're out here every summer developing a project of some kind. They get to design and build that. And this last year, we started thinking about how to anchor that really special program that we have in the summer, Sea Light, Skylight. And the challenge for them was like, what how could we anchor that in something physical on the property? Mm. And so we explored lots of, you know, ancient and traditional um, violence and different sky-related measuring things that um, got very complicated sometimes and were really beautiful and they were materials exploration and so it got very big and then it gradually got more and more simple and we ended up with our sky pillar project and that's a beautiful beautiful installation that uh, the the two pillars cast a shadow along a, a runway on a plaza that we've measured out that the students measured out with great precision and care uh, to see how long that shadow would be at the winter solstice. So so I'm going to put a, a photo, I guess, on the Shared Ground Facebook page so folks can see it. And I'm sure they can see photos on the, the Deanery website too, probably. Um, but maybe if one of you could just like describe it, since we can't see it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's two concrete pillars uh, made of concrete that has biochar in it, and they are aligned so that when it is solar noon, the sunlight is able to pass between. They're, the two pillars are very close to each other, and there's just a small gap between them. And when it's noon, if it's not cloudy, you can see the line of sunlight between them that will line up with the old apple tree that we have here. And there are some tiles on the ground to mark a straight line. And so at the winter solstice and the summer solstice, we've been able to see the big difference in the size of the shadow. And the pillars are about eight feet tall? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a, it's an ongoing project. And we're in the process right now of developing the the plaza, we're calling it, with this uh, slate runway um, down the the middle of it where the shadows are cast onto and that that plaza area will be designed to talk about uh, talk about medicinal plants traditional wabanaki forest and other special species that we want to use for educational purposes as well so it's very much a a research installation as well as an art installation and part of the research piece is that the, the pillars were made using um, standard concrete as the core material, and then it's been clad in a, 
a biochar and concrete mix. So it's interestingly differentiated. You can see like there's a very mottled surface on the uh, the exterior of it. It's, it's really beautiful. So what proportion biochar to concrete mix approximately? I'm not going to, I can't remember what that okay. is actually right now. That was a mix that we did in, that was done in the city by the students. Oh, because you were doing all sorts of different experiments too, weren't you? Of different ratios and things. Yeah. So there's, okay. on the plaza right now, there's a number of little concrete triangular prism-like um, structures, uh, installations that are samples of the different mixes that the the students experimented with. So we've used those as sort of additional elements on the on the plaza. I'm not sure what, what they're gonna turn into, but they're they're really beautiful and different shades of grays, depending on the amount of biochar that was added to it. Okay, so it's quite beautiful looking and why else is it there? Why else is the biochar? Why did you put biochar in it? Right. So biochar is this amazing opportunity for us to think about carbon sequestration. And so it's you produce it by burning biomass in a low oxygen environment. And that fuel stock could be um, wood chips or it could be um, it could be sewage. And in our case, we're using um, an invasive species. We're using Japanese knotweed to produce the biochar. And the biochar is very porous. It's an interesting material that um, when you add it to certain things like concrete, it will actually make a stronger concrete. But it's if you add it, you can add it, spread it on the forest floor or add it to your gardens. And uh, because it's very porous, it's this... These, they're these little condos that the microorganisms like to populate. And so it creates a, an environment that brings in a lot of biodiversity into the, uh, the soils. So if you think about plants, you know, they're pulling down carbon from the atmosphere and we're wanting to um, lock that in somehow. And that's what the production of the, the char does. So it locks in the carbon and puts it in a place where it's doing many good things rather than being released again into uh, into the atmosphere. Okay, so when you use it in concrete, um, it's already has sequestered its carbon, and so it's just a way to keep the carbon locked into something and also offsetting some of the cement in the concrete. That's so exactly it. Making yeah. it a more more environmentally friendly building material for a couple of key reasons. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Neat. And where so wherever we can put biochar as a this bank of uh, carbon is great. So we've added it to our earthen floors and putting it in plasters. And uh-huh. so then again, if you can add it to your gardens or even in degraded forest soils and things like that. It's, mm. it's got many, many applications, and we're really, I think, just starting to scrape the surface of what's possible with it. It's, and keeping in mind always that it's very much about the bur- how it's burned. It has to be burned in a particular way that it's not going to be releasing more emissions um, mm. at the same time. Obviously, you don't want to be burning down a healthy forest or whole trees just to create biochar that would be counterproductive and damaging in other ways. But you also mentioned the low oxygen environment. And I'm just curious then if you have a campfire 
and that charcoal that's left over, is that different from biochar? You're often left with ash. So if you can stop that burn at a particular point where you've you've left with the carbon, mm-hmm. then you'll have something that's very similar to like the this biochar that we're we're describing it. That's really all it is. Okay. So as long as it hasn't turned to ash, the charcoal is just another name for biochar. Yeah. Usually. Basically. Okay. Yeah. I also heard, um, I saw someone speak, I forget his name, but uh, he was saying that it's also useful to like kind of inoculate the biochar if you're going to use it in your garden with some beneficial things. And he said that could be various things. But one of the things he said was that like you could pee on it. So I was just picturing like that's perfect, you know, and you have a campfire and you just like pee on it before it turns to ashes. And then you've also inoculated it and made it healthy for your garden at the same time. Yep. Cool. That's a fun thing we can all go home and do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So tell us about the sky pillar and how, um, yeah, how, how have you found that people are reacting to that when they, when they see it and learn about it or when they see the shadow fall in a certain way? I think there's a, a lot of excitement around it and curiosity and as soon as we step into what's possible with it, especially as soon as you name Polaris and the North Star and that it can it's being used as a a way to orient oneself to to the sky in that way, that's like what? It's so simple. And and it doesn't move? Like is that possible? And and so there's just there's wonderful conversations with people of all ages, children to adults. Um, so there's the daytime shadow learning that we, learning and sharing we can do with that. But there's very much a focus on this connecting with the night sky and and the vastness of that space that we don't often connect with. Hmm. The night sky here is remarkable. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we've done re- we've done measurements here that put it in the same range as the the, the skies you get at Keji and, mm. and other places that are. Um, we've been measured to have a dark sky designation. We haven't really pursued that as an official designation at this point, but we may do. Mm. But that being said, it's it's pretty special, and and I think having. The bioluminescence piece that's so unusual here or accessible. It's not even that it's that unusual because we do have it in abundance around Nova Scotia, but it's just we don't always get out to see it in the same way that we don't always get out to see and experience the night skies. Right. As you do here. Yeah. So it's like a monument to the magic of the night time almost. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful it's a a bridge to the night a bridge to the night oh that's neat yeah when I was here I guess that was in October for the work that reconnects for that workshop and uh and you said oh you you encouraged the group the group of us that were there was a small group that first night before the workshop started and we went down and uh 
and you gave us it was really fun you sent us out and you're like here take this paddle take this stick take this like this funny array of like you know tools to go and splash around in the water and yeah and it was spectacular I'd seen it maybe twice before in my life and I did wonder like is that just because I'm not out in the night enough or not you know by the ocean at night enough and not stomping around on the ground or you know having splashing around in the water where you'd see it but it is like a magical really magical experience to see those sparkly things happening under the water and then and the stars yeah above and so everybody should come to that event I guess (laughs) (laughs) or at least go to wherever you have water nearby and see if you can find it um it you, you want it to be uh when it's dark enough so when there's a full moon it would be harder to see the bioluminescence than at a new moon a new mm. moon is a good time to look at the bioluminescence ah uh, yes good point um but do you know if it could happen anywhere there's like anywhere on the coastline of our province could people find it do you know there's places where it's more abundant for sure because it depends on currents and uh, that kind of thing and what I find really interesting is that you can find it all year round as well. So it's not something that we will just find in August. But uh, we don't tend to go and poke around in the water so much in February. But I have heard that you can uh, break the ice and and it'll be there. Really? Yeah. So it's not, it's still there in cold waters, obviously, yeah. then. Huh. Well, one of you tell us what it is <laughs> what is it anyway how does it work i don't know a whole lot but it's an algae it's an algae that releases light when it is um when it's poked or when it bumps into something um and i think each little algae can only release light every so often because it takes up their energy and so when you're seeing the constant sparkles that's a different algae than the algae who sparkled a moment ago Um, and so that's why when you stir your hand through the water you see the sparkles or if the water's lapping at the shore you can see the bioluminescence huh well that's a pretty neat thing to think that it's they're working to get they're working together like the the same one can't sparkle twice in a row you're saying Maybe, maybe maybe that's true (laughs) okay we'll double check that part (laughs) okay Um, This is reminding me of another beautiful nighttime phenomenon, though, that I'm wondering if you've experienced here, and that is uh, phosphorescent fungi. I have seen it here. Have you seen it? Where you kick over a log and it's like beautiful green. You've seen it. I have. I've only seen it one time. Mm -hmm. I was at Windhorse Farm and I saw actually three different ones that night. I went later with a headlamp. We were on a night walk in the dark, complete dark. And I first I thought there must be fireflies in the distance, but that didn't make sense because we were in the deep woods and they weren't moving. And then I ended up going closer and realizing. And then later I went back with a headlamp to see them in light and found out that there were three different kinds. And meanwhile, I didn't even know they existed until that night. And I haven't seen them since, probably again, because I'm not out in the dark at night enough at the right time of year in that case. Mm -hmm. So I'm always curious if other people have seen it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of it, but it's a a fungi that bioluminescence. And uh, sometimes you'll kick a, a log when you're walking down the path and it'll be this, I, the ones I've seen are that lovely luminous green 
Yes. Okay. What color did you see? I think it was green. It's it's funny that I don't remember completely clearly because it was a pretty amazing experience, but it was also many years ago now. And mm. I don't know if I remember exactly, but I do know that one of the ones I saw was um, was actually like a little, like I could see the little mushroom. It looked like a, a gilled mushroom, but it was almost like it's a top was twisted and it was facing up like its little gills were facing up the one that I saw and it was quite small mm. so that's the, the part that's standing out for me and I yeah I just couldn't believe it and, and at the time I thought I need to go out every night and search for this but uh, I haven't haven't really made that my mission <laughs> and you saw those at Windhorse mm-hmm. 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 when we were on a night walk you know with a group of people and we were following each other in single file with without any without any light just feeling our way through the forest a silent night walk, yeah. You yeah. know the kind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen them at red clay quite a bit out there, and, and I've seen oh. them here, too. Huh. Yeah. There, there's some really amazing things, isn't there? And uh, some of them, most of us don't even know exist, and it's just a matter of um, discovering them. Mm. I wanted to add here that what we refer to as Windhorse Farm is now called Azidulisk, which means that which gives you balance in the Mi'kmaq language. Two years ago, in the spirit of reconciliation, Windhorse Farm was returned through a combination of purchase and gift to the original peoples of this land. Woolnawig Education Centre, an Indigenous-led organization serving Atlantic Canada, is now the caretaker of that special place. Azadulisk is not far from Bridgewater, and the other place Kim mentioned seeing the phosphorescent fungi, other than at the deanery, is Red Clay, which is located on the Minas Basin, just west of Truro. I have no idea what the geographic range or other factors might be for the existence of phosphorescent fungi, and I look forward to inviting a mycologist to shared ground at some point to explore this very fascinating topic. While I've interrupted us, I'd like also to mention two other shared ground episodes you may be interested in hearing, if you haven't already. Episode 17 takes a more general glimpse into the Deanery Project, and in Episode 16, Dr. Jen McClatchy talks about her doctoral research focused on using arts-based methods to engage with waste, weeds, and wastelands to form a settler method for decolonizing relationship with land. But now, we'll head back to our Sky Pillar conversation in the Wabanagi Tree Nursery at the Deanery. So, Jen... I've been really excited to sort of bring you into the evolution of the sky pillar. And I've seen you doing lots of calculations. And that's been really fun because you've made that really accessible in lots of ways. Um, And I'm curious about what you think that it could lead to. What, What are the exciting things that it could, we could share with that installation um i guess the part about connecting with the night sky and getting people interested in in not just looking at the stars but look like identifying which star um and then being able to recognize a constellation and then realizing that that can help them navigate um is as a part of being a kayak instructor i teach navigation and Mm. usually we're not using the night sky to do that because it's usually daytime when we're kayaking but um, still the concept of being able to orient yourself in space using different different things in your environment around you is really important yeah 
Yeah, that's been huge. And I and I feel that looking learning to navigate whether it's daytime, nighttime and just see our place in space is huge and we don't often do that really anymore. Yeah. So mapping, personal mapping and spatial mapping, there's some huge opportunities to kind of reconnect with with the natural world. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that the more you would be familiar with the night sky, which which I'm not very familiar, um, but I have aspirations to be. But, you know, when you get to know a species of plant or tree and you or you see an animal you recognize and you feel kind of at home because that's sort of like a friend of yours or, you know, um, you have some relationship with it and you see it, you can see it um, other places that aren't aren't your home and you and it feels like, oh, a taste of home, like if you saw an old friend or something walking down the street. And so I feel like that's what it would be just like a greater sense of belonging on the earth if you were able to recognize um, aspects of the night sky better that wherever you went and you could see that and it would orient you in a way that that you couldn't if you didn't know that. Yeah, if we've become so disenfranchised from that those parts of our lives that, you know, have been eons parts of the human experience. And uh, so however we can um, access some of that connection and knowledge is, Mm. I think, really, really critical at this time. Hmm. And I think it's also interesting, the potential for, I haven't been here at night when there's a full moon to look at the sky pillar but I assume that at full moon uh, around midnight there would be a similar moon shadow probably lining up or at least close to lining up depending on whether the actual full moon corresponds how closely it corresponds with solar midnight here Um, and I think that is also an interesting way of connecting people. It could be an interesting way of connecting people with the moon because you can also use the moon to figure out direction and orient yourself if you understand what each phase of the moon means and where it is in relation to the sun. Um, yeah. Yeah, neat. So so when, when would that work with the full moon? Would it just be certain full moons where it would line up or at, at midnight? Um, so... The when the full moon is like exactly the full moon, there's like I don't know somewhere somebody has calculated the exact time that the moon and the Earth and the Sun are on a straight line, and that's why we are able to see it as full because it's on the opposite side of us from the Sun, so the Sun is lighting up its full face, um, and so if that time, I think, I mean, it's going to be it doesn't it could be any time any time zone. Um, but if it happened to be close to midnight um, in this time zone, and I mean solar midnight, so if you're on daylight savings time, that's 1 a.m. Mm. Um, approximately, then the moon shadow should be on or close to the the same line as the solar noon sun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, I have seen the the shadow, the pillar shadows. Um, beautiful in the moonlight. In the moonlight, but I've never actually measured their length or where they are in that time. So now I will, Jen. Good, and it depends on the like. If it's uh, first quarter, then it should line up 
I guess around 6, 6 p.m., because that's halfway between mm. noon and midnight and halfway between full and new moon, approximately, maybe, I think. So this is also making me think of like how we can appreciate the shorter days in the winter because you have more chance to measure this moon shadow business. Yep. Yep. <laughs> We've been appreciating that and yeah. it's changing quite rapidly right now. And I'm in my house feeling sorry that it isn't springtime yet. I'll think, oh, well, at least at the deanery, they're <laughs> able to watch the moon and the shadow and see what's going on. But also you can just take <laughs> two pieces of something to logs and set up your own little mini sky pillar and make those connections too and and we get excited about that opportunity as well to just sort of um inspire other ways of connecting and creating and right oh good point so anyone can set up something vertical where they are and then watch how it interacts with the yeah yeah you can find the tallest tree in the area and you don't have to build it again. It's right. there. Oh, yeah. Like a large sundial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's next for the sky pillar? <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts or anything else you want to share? Yeah. The, the sky pillar is spawning, birthing many more projects in relation to it. So the intention is that now that we have this violinth there, that it will inspire other creations around the property or off the property that will enable us to tell more stories and um, more ways of orienting people to to the land. Mm -hmm. So we talked about maybe pacing off where Mercury would be in relation to the, the, the sky pillar or where a particular celestial event might um, orient to it. And so then we'll invite people to go and mark that spot somehow and create some more art. We love having many art things around. So where we land those pieces of storytelling will um, just make it richer and richer what's possible. Hmm. And as it seems like you often or always do here, maybe it's it's... A real collaborative effort too and an evolving project yeah absolutely we're very much about who's in the room at the time is the expression that we usually use and those people will help inform what it is that gets what what the sky pillar inspires next and we can't predict that necessarily at all um, but we have you know we have some ideas and it's it's triggering lots of creativity for sure and I think once we get the uh, the plaza um, grounds developed, and again, that's going to be a collaborative effort and uh, a, a dynamic, changing, ever-changing piece of work as well. So that's going to be a lot of fun, really a lot of fun. And we welcome ideas and thoughts on all of those things. If, as you're sharing this wonderful podcast, Amanda, please put the word out that people are welcome to bring their ideas to the uh, this part of the project and other parts as well. 
Okay, well, they've heard it from you now. So if folks do want to get involved, they should um, what, contact you so they can come, come visit or come to one of the events or send you a message or how should people reach out with whatever ideas? So we have open houses once a month, the first Sunday of the month in the afternoons. And those, there's music and other activities that are associated with that. But if somebody's got an especially an art idea or would like to talk about a residency or a piece of science research and or a program with youth or adults that you should just yeah get in touch with with myself probably and um, we'll see what we can hatch okay yeah that's exciting and so yeah and I would really encourage people to come out here if they haven't been there's just so many amazing wonderful beautiful and interesting things happening here um and have been in the last decade, I guess, right? So, yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes and hopefully people will come and, and see for themselves and get involved in some way. Yeah, yeah, it's a, we're so privileged to be able to be helping steward this land and like all the lands, they we need to all be sharing that stewardship deeply and profoundly, so. And we learn from each other how to how to do that in the best ways possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love being inspired to think more deeply about the importance of reconnecting to the night sky and how spending time observing outdoors at night can aid our ability to orient ourselves and feel a sense of place. And who knows what unexpected glowing or sparkling creatures you may find in the process. To learn more about the Deanery Project, or to share an idea with them, you can look up their website, or plan a trip to visit one of their monthly open houses, as Kim mentioned. And mark your calendars for next August's Sea Light Starlight Festival. Hopefully I'll see you there. If you'd like to support this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Two ways to do that is by leaving a good review on one of the podcast platforms, or by making a donation which you can do through the link in the Shared Ground show notes or written description. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.